the Culture and Animals Foundation. Think, create, explore, celebrate. Have you ever heard the squeal of a hungry otter? No? Then prepare to have your heart broken. I can die happy now, knowing that at least once I produced a piece of work containing the otter's incredible mule. But why are we beginning with the sounds of one of the cutest animals in the world? Because, would you believe, back in the swinging 60s, people hunted them. At the end of the 1960s, things began to take off. It was really when I went down to visit my family in Dorset, I encountered the otter hunters. That's psychologist and activist Richard Ryder. And I had a great um, confrontation with them. This was reported in the national newspapers the following day because I was carrying a gun, actually, under my arm, and so it made a good picture. Richard Ryder, gun-toting psychologist, was the headline. And um, Anyway, I, I decided there and then that, that I, I would have to do something about trying to stop otter hunting, so I started um, a score of demonstrations, protests against otter hunting. Ryder became one of the most well-known and respected campaigners for animal rights. It was Ryder and his friends who did indeed bring an end to the hunting of otters in the southwest of England. In the 1960s, after 50 years in which the traumas of two world wars had put animal advocacy on the back burner, it felt as if campaigns like ending otter hunting could work. People had enough material possessions and psychological space to think again of the prejudices that confronted rich, technologically developed societies. The 1960s was, of course, this extraordinary era when prejudices were challenged. Sexism and racism, even ageism, you could say classism. All these prejudices and forms of discrimination were attacked and gradually came under fire. This opening to challenging prejudice in wider society gave animal advocates new hope. Even so, it still wasn't easy to work for animals. At the time, there was an extraordinary amount of contempt towards those people who showed a particular concern for animals. It seems extraordinary now, but it was quite frightening, really. Eating animals, killing animals, doing whatever you had to do with animals, experiment on them, and not give in to feeling. But feeling is exactly what some have given in to, including Richard Martin himself as have many other men and women throughout history. However, as Ryder notes, to be an animal lover for women and men was to risk attack, social caricature and isolation. People would say, accuse other men of being effeminate. And that was one of the charges that was brought against men who showed too much concern for animals. It's extraordinary to have to explain this nowadays. People have forgotten uh, it was regarded as something that might concern women, but it wasn't certainly a subject that men should take too seriously. Thank goodness all that has now changed. But has it? In this episode, we'll follow two threads of animal protection in this period that flow directly from reconsidering Martin's Act. The first is people's continued concern for farmed animals, and especially their mistreatment as farming industrialised. The second thread is a question that's almost part of the rubric of Martin's Act. That of gender, male dominance, sexual prejudice and discrimination and their troubling intersections with animal advocacy. In other words, this admittedly partial audio documentary has to ask, 
Has the contemporary animal advocacy movement challenged the dominant forms of oppression in society, the isms of sexism, racism, as well as speciesism, or merely mimicked them? It's important to remember it because it was the first piece of animal welfare legislation. Protests, campaigns, petitions, they've all got a place, but there are far too few legal challenges. We still have a legal system dominated by people who believe that anthropocentrism is right, that it is proper to value humans over animals. His compassion for others was was universal. Welcome to Martin's Act at 200 a six-part audio documentary celebrating the bicentenary of the Cruel Treatment of Cattle Act, the first piece of parliamentary legislation anywhere in the world to protect animals. I'm Dr Alex Lockwood, author and activist, and I've been your guide on this journey through the history of animal protection, exploring the efforts to create a world in which animals have freedoms to flourish. You know who would have loved otters? Well, a marine biologist who once worked for the United States Bureau of Fisheries and who lived on the coast of Maine. She dedicated her life to the protection of nature and its wild creatures. I don't have many heroes, but if I were to pick one, it would be the woman whose book, Silent Spring, inaugurated the modern environmental movement, Rachel Carson. There appears to be growing concern among scientists as to the possibility of dangerous long-range side effects from the widespread use of DDT and other pesticides. Have you considered asking the Public Health Service to take a closer look at this? Yes, and I know that they uh, already are. I think particularly, of course, uh, since Ms. Carson's book, but uh, they are examining the matter. That's President John F. Kennedy responding to a question about the pesticide, the DDT, which is at the heart of Carson's book, as he calls Silent Spring. The scientists looking into the issue would do so through Kennedy's own Scientific Advisory Committee on Pesticides, which reported on May 15th, 1963. Carson addressed the congressional hearing that received the report. Mr. Chairman, I appreciate the opportunity to discuss with you this morning the problems of environmental hazards and the control of pesticides. The contamination of the environment with harmful substances is one of the major problems of modern life. The report is read here by American journalist Denise Stephens. The world of air and water and soil supports not only the hundreds of thousands of species of animals and plants, It supports man himself. In the past, we have often chosen to ignore this fact. Now we are receiving sharp reminders that our heedless and destructive acts enter into the vast cycles of the earth and in time return to bring hazard to ourselves. Dr. Robert White Stevens, a biochemist, assistant director of the Agricultural Research Division of American Cyanamid and a spokesperson for the chemical industry, didn't like this at all. Ms. Carson maintains that the balance of nature is a major force in the survival of man, whereas the modern chemist, the modern biologist, the modern scientist believes that man is steadily controlling nature. He was not alone. The chemical industry organised a propaganda response to try to discredit Carson's work. As you might guess... Their main tactic was misogyny. They attacked Carson for being weak of will and for being a spinster, so likely a lesbian. These characteristics, they insinuated, made her scientific work dubious. 
They also denigrated her elegant literary style of writing, which they saw as evidence that her work was unscientific. But the serialisation of Silent Spring in The New Yorker through 1962 and 1963 contributed to Carson's work, reaching and moving broad swathes of the American public. It is telling, I think, that male scientists considered her clarity of language and moral concern to be both intellectually and socially suspect. Silent Spring begins with a story. There was once a town in the heart of America where all life seemed to live in harmony with its surroundings. The town lay in the midst of a checkerboard of prosperous farms with fields of grain and hillsides of orchards. This chapter, A Fable for Tomorrow, has become justly famous. A strange blight crept over the area and everything began to change. Some evil spell had settled on the community. Mysterious maladies swept the flocks of chickens. The cattle and sheep sickened and died. Everywhere was a shadow of death. And what caused the shadow? It begins with the war-born development of DDT, this diabolical weapon of modern science saved millions of humans but killed billions of insects. This 1950s ad from the petrochemical industry shows, perhaps, that free love and rock and roll weren't the only products of the post-war boom. came from laboratories where top scientists from famous universities and from industrial and government organisations collaborated to develop something new and different. They succeeded. They perfected Pestroy, the most effective weapon man has ever wielded against insects. The chemicals and machinery created to win World War II now had to find a domestic consumer. You're probably not alone in finding the contrast between the ad's violence and the sweet music jarring. DDT is absorbed through the feet and spreads throughout the insect's entire nervous system. The effect is disastrous. DDT seems to literally drive bugs crazy. But not for long. DDT next paralyzes. Then the death was not limited to insects, as if their demise is somehow unimportant, but spread to creatures the American public did care about, especially the birds eating those insects. There was a strange stillness. The birds, for example, where had they gone? Many people spoke of them, puzzled and disturbed. The feeding stations in the backyards were deserted. The few birds seen anywhere were moribund. They trembled violently and could not fly. It was a spring without voices. No witchcraft, no enemy action had silenced the rebirth of new life in this stricken world. The people had done it themselves. The people, yes, but let's be honest, mainly the men. For this new insect destroyer contains a lot of DDT, not just a little. Its DDT content is even higher than government specifications. It's a handful of concentrated death. JFK's commission on this concentrated death, shaped by Carson's testimony, led to the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency and the 1972 ban on DDT. Former US Vice President Al Gore, in his introduction to the 30th anniversary of Silent Spring, said, Silent Spring had a profound impact. Indeed, Rachel Carson was one of the reasons that I became so conscious of the environment and so involved with environmental issues. Although her work was not specifically about animal rights, Carson's impact was broad as well as deep. Not only did it lead to legislation to protect nature and help birth the modern environmental movement, but, as we'll see, 
it encouraged many animal advocates to speak out. Unfortunately, the sexism and misogyny faced by Carson didn't end with her death in 1964. Even today, advocating for environmental protection and animals can be an unsafe space for women. Let's cross the Atlantic and meet two women who were challenging the treatment of animals in 1960s Britain and facing sexist attacks of their own. It's 1964, and in England, a book about factory farming is published. It follows the template laid down by Carson. Like Silent Spring, it will be serialised, this time in The Observer. Where Silent Spring provoked fears of DDT poisoning, this book will demand the UK government act on industrial farming's chemical residues. It even has a foreword written by Carson. The book? Ruth Harrison's Animal Machines. Ruth Harrison was born in London in 1920 to middle-class Quaker parents. She was passionate about ending injustice and reducing cruelty and felt, as did Carson, that the best way of doing both was by gathering together a public chorus for change. And she wrote a book to do just that. Harrison presented herself as an ordinary citizen, avoiding connection with either the establishment, RSPCA, or radical groups of the time, such as the crusade against all cruelty to animals. She concerned herself with the health, environmental and ethical problems of intensive farming, which had begun to dominate animal agriculture. Although animal machines didn't mention vegetarianism or Quakerism, the roots of which we touched upon in the last episode, one detail could not be hidden. Ruth Harrison was a woman, and this fact proved enough for opponents to attack her work. Writing in the Daily Mail, agricultural commentator John Winter attempted to discredit Harrison by presenting her views as those of a fanciful female mind. Winter asked, Are farmers really as cruel as this housewife says? It is time somebody sowed some fresh seeds in the fertile mind of Ruth Harrison. She is nothing other than a housewife, mother and vegetarian. It is logical that female city dwellers such as Harrison would be horrified at conditions in even the best abattoirs. Nevertheless, animal machines stuck. Public outrage at the treatment of animals in factory farms forced officials to convene what's known today as the Bramble Committee to review welfare on farms. The committee's 1965 report is one of the most important documents in animal protection history. The Bramble Report acknowledged the importance of animals' affective states and proposed concrete welfare improvements. It's the report that initiated what are to this day known as the five freedoms. Freedom to stand up, lie down, turn around, groom themselves and stretch their limbs. The five freedoms are a controversial set of standards. But do they in fact protect animals from the horrors that Harrison outlined in her book? Many argue not, including legal scholar Charlotte Blattner, whom we'll hear from in the final episode. The problem is, of course, that the five freedoms are standards for welfare, not a set of rights. In fact, you could say, and Blattner does, that focusing on welfareist freedoms is in fact a significant failure of the animal protection movement in the 20th and 21st centuries. For while the five freedoms are translated into legislation, they're generally overridden by whatever counts today as standard farming practice, such as killing unprofitable piglets by slamming them headfirst into concrete. So, this appeal to welfareist freedom actually insulates animal exploitation industries from more radical, rights-based legislation and a demanding social animal contract. You only have to look as far as the RSPCA's Freedom Food Scheme to see that. Yet Harrison's book was a milestone. 
The Bramble Report led to the establishment of the Farm Animal Welfare Council, of which Harrison became a member. The following year presented a landmark for another woman's writing, this time via a newspaper article in the London Times in October 1965. The article begins with an image drawn from angling. Were it announced tomorrow that anyone who fancied it might, without risk of reprisals or recriminations, stand at a fourth-storey window, dangle out of it a length of string, with a meal labelled free on the end. I told you freedom was problematic. And wait till a chance passerby took a bite, and then, having entangled his cheek or gullet on a hook hidden in the food, haul him up to the fourth floor, and there batter him to death with a knob carry, I do not think there would be many takers. I've been a fan of Brophy since I first heard her speak at the RSPCA Animal Rights Conference at Trinity College, Cambridge in 1977. That's Kim Storwood, a lifelong advocate for animals. Storwood spent time listening to and working with Brophy during the 1970s and 1980s. I really liked her dry wit and piercing argument uh, that she made in support of animal rights. Here, Storwood is talking with philosopher Josh Milburn on Knowing Animals, an excellent podcast created by Australian political scientist Siobhan O'Sullivan. More from Storwood on Brophy's work for those often forgotten animals, fishes. The inaugural meeting of the Council for the Prevention of Cruelty by Angling was in 1981 in London, and at that time there was very little attention given by the animal movement toward angling, which is the uh, fishing uh, equivalent of hunting animals with dogs to kill foxes and so on. And she was, a, I think, a, a pioneer in that regard. And because I worked with her on the organising uh, of this inaugural meeting, I wanted to remind everyone of the, of the pivotal role that, that Brophy made in the formation um, of the animal rights movement before it really sort of took off after... Um, Singer's publication of Animal Liberation in 1975. We'll get to Peter Singer later. So, was there some sort of upwelling of concern for our aquatic kin? Not really. Brophy was taking on a huge community. Angling was at that time Britain's largest sporting pastime, but, like fox hunting, had avoided much attention. That said, what feeling there was had Brophy at its centre, and she laid the ground for later work. There were very, uh, there weren't many efforts at that time. It was really was more about putting a stake in the ground and saying, we have to talk about fish. So these were very early, early steps in, in, in raising the issue of fish within the animal rights movement. And I think that Brophy's contribution to the meeting, uh, a Felicitas Day for Fish, is really the outstanding moment of these very early steps. It was the casual indifference to fish's welfare that Brophy highlighted. Yet sane adults do the equivalent to fish every day. Not in panic, sexual jealousy, ideological frenzy or even greed, but for amusement. Civilization is not outraged at their behaviour. On the contrary, that a person's hobby is fishing is often read as a guarantee of his sterling and innocent character. 
Brophy's article landed in the wake of Harrison's animal machines, and together, you could say, they took full advantage of the liberatory energy that the 1960s released. Brophy, in particular, was central to animal rights becoming a part of the public conversation, while Harrison's focus on standards saw radio and TV programmes discuss vegetarian diets and compassion for farmed animals. Inspired by Brophy's writing, a group of academics from Britain, North America and Australasia became very interested in developing a moral philosophy that included non-human beings. Stanley and Rosalind Godlevich, John Harris, David Wood and Michael Peters became known as the Oxford Group. They approached Brophy and made friends. She in turn introduced them to Richard Ryder, who was focused on campaigning against animal experimentation. The group wrote, collected and edited the essays that would appear as the groundbreaking book Animals, Men and Morals in 1971. The introduction stated, Once the full force of moral assessment has been made explicit, there can be no rational excuse left for killing animals, be they killed for food, science or sheer personal indulgence. With another academic, the British theologian Andrew Lindsay, the group, especially Ryder, organised another landmark, the Cambridge Conference on Animal Rights at Trinity College, Cambridge, in 1977. This was the first international conference devoted explicitly to animal rights. Also in attendance was the American philosopher Tom Reagan, Kim Storwood and American activist Jim Mason, who we'll hear from in a moment. One person was notable by his absence, Peter Singer, although he did write the preface to the conference's anthology and kicked himself for not being there. The conference ended with a major statement. All attendees signed the Rights of Animals, a declaration against speciesism, which read, Inasmuch as we believe that there is ample evidence that many other species are capable of feeling, we condemn totally the infliction of suffering upon our brother animals and the curtailment of their enjoyment, unless it be necessary for their own individual benefit. We do not accept that a difference in species alone, any more than a difference in race, can justify wanton exploitation or oppression in the name of science or sport, or for food, commercial profit, or other human gain. We believe in the evolutionary and moral kinship of all animals, and we declare our belief that all sentient creatures have rights to life, liberty, and the quest for happiness. We call for the protection of these rights. You may think that I've given Carson, Harrison and Brophy too much attention, but never fear, as you'll see... I'm getting to the men. Some men were beginning to worry about the ease with which the movement's critics had attacked its women members and intellectual leaders, tarring all animal advocates as emotional or effeminate, riders' fears in the 1960s. Male philosophers purposefully attempted to steer the movement away from charges of sentimentality. One person who argued this approach was Peter Singer. Singer was an Australian who came to study for a PhD at Oxford University in September 1969. His area was moral philosophy and ethics, but not, to begin with, animals. Let me say that at this time, up to this stage, I had no more interest in animal issues than the next person. And that, for most people in 69, was very, very little. It was not thought of as a moral issue in in any real sense. In his philosophical and academic circles, at least. But there were some people advocating for animals. The only thing that there was was that there was um, anti-cruelty societies, the RSPCA, and there were anti-vivisection societies. 
But basically the anti-vivisection societies were thought of as cranks and sometimes I have to say their behaviour reinforced that impression. Singer's dim view of grassroots animal advocacy mirrored his remoteness from vegetarian circles at the time. I didn't know any vegetarians. I can't think of a single vegetarian that I'd ever really come across up to this point. I mean, obviously I knew that there were such people, but they were rare. To be fair... The philosophers at Oxford did try their hand at street activism and attempted to get the local co-op to switch to free-range eggs. So, what got Singer interested in animals then? It was meeting a fellow student, a Canadian called Richard Keshen, who Singer dined with in his Oxford college. Singer noticed that Keshen was not eating meat. They talked more about factory farming, of which Singer had no awareness. And then Keshen suggested Singer come and meet a couple of other Canadian students who had influenced him. These were Stanley and Rosalind Godlevich. And, uh, you know, the three of them anyway, Richard and uh, Rosalind and Stan, were you know, fairly persuasive in suggesting that there was a real ethical issue about the way we treat animals. That it wasn't just a matter of you know, being an animal lover or feeling uh, you know, strong uh, sentiments towards animals, which was basically the way that even the anti-vivisection societies at that time operated. And if you didn't think of yourself as an animal lover, then that wasn't very impressive. And if someone told you that, look, more than 90% of experiments are done on rats and mice anyway, and who loves those, that basically seemed like the end of that argument. But um, I spent quite a lot of time talking to uh, those three, and and particularly to Roz Godlovich, I guess. And it was she who recommended that I read the only book that had been published on factory farming at that time, uh, Ruth Harrison's Animal Machines. For me, it was something of an eye-opener because I had no idea that animals were being kept in conditions in which basically they couldn't move, that uh, veal calves were in stalls in darkness most of the time, um, that they were deliberately made anemic, that they couldn't turn around that uh, hens were in wire cages so small they couldn't stretch their wings, that um, sows were also confined in stalls that they couldn't turn around in. I knew none of this. So, you can see the influence of women here, Godlevich and Harrison, on Singer. You can also hear taking shape from the start the position that being an animal lover wasn't necessary to advocate for animals. In fact, according to these male philosophers, people's reliance on feelings did not challenge the status quo. Instead, moral considerability and reason were to be at the heart of a new, philosophically driven animal advocacy movement. This was to some extent a challenge, I guess, initially. The first, my first reaction was, well, it does seem like there's things we do to animals that maybe we shouldn't, but I wasn't prepared to accept that animals have in some way a comparable moral status to humans. And so I thought, well, why don't they have a comparable moral status to humans? What is it that distinguishes humans? And I thought about, you know, ways in which you could argue against what um, what the Godloviches and Richard were saying. I looked a bit at some of the works of other philosophers to see what they might tell me about this. I looked at contemporary philosophers. But what struck me was that, in fact, The philosophers that I were looking at ignored this. So he wrote what was missing, and in 1975 published Animal Liberation. Singer has done as much as anyone to establish animals as a subject of concern. 
Most guests on Siobhan O'Sullivan's Knowing Animals podcast cite animal liberation as the first piece of pro-animal academic work they can remember reading. Mine, by the way, was Silent Spring. Singer and other philosophers such as Tom Reagan were committed to argumentation and reason because they considered emotion and affect not persuasive to those who didn't care about animals. And that was most people when it came to farmed animals. You could say that these philosophers argued that emotion could no longer be the lens through which animal advocacy was to be enacted if we wanted those who didn't currently care for animals to change their minds. But tactics aside... It is also important and has been one of the tasks of this documentary to reconnect animal advocacy to individuals from the past who have been forgotten or overlooked. Let's cross back over the Atlantic to the US and continue the factory farm thread of this episode. It's 1974 and we're with the American writer and activist Jim Mason. Yes, he's another man in this story, but one whose views were very strongly shaped by women and especially feminists. In the course of just a very few years, you know, by 1974, I suppose, I was on my way to becoming a vegetarian and becoming really more focused on animal activism and uh, was already researching factory farming. Actually, I wrote a pamphlet about it for Friends of Animals even before I met Peter Singer. Mason was born in 1940, grew up on a farm in Missouri and began his studies in law. The tragedy of his wife's terminal illness when he was 31 part propelled him into a serious consideration of his life. And this great jolt, as he called it, got him into animal advocacy. As a law student, he'd used his knowledge of farmed animals to tease his colleagues. Well, you're bantering about concepts, and I said, you know, many times, that, you know, I, I think we should extend the Bill of Rights or the Constitution to animals because they have personhood. They have a concept of personhood as we know it here in the law school. They have self-awareness and... Uh, some degree of consciousness, ability to communicate, all of these things we know from science. And how odd it is that the law is maybe three or four hundred years behind this knowledge. So that was kind of like my budding little awareness of, uh, you might say, animal rights, that they deserved rights as we know them in the legal sense. Mason went on to provide legal aid support, but was, he admitted, too ill-disciplined to continue with it. The work, however, brought him into contact with radical ideas and people. I mean, here I am again, you know, this cracker with a southern accent, and I'd have, you know, like the leadership of the Bridgeport Black Panther in my little Volkswagen Beetle on our way to the housing project to a meeting. Uh, We had streets barricaded because of rent strikes that we conducted. I mean, we were engaged in some pretty heavy-duty stuff in 1969, 70, and 71. And that tended to bring me to a higher state of consciousness, a more formulated political consciousness, as well as, of course, the exposure of the um, relationships I was, I was developing with people who were politically active. And I was going to meetings with black activists and Hispanic activists who were very political as well. Many of them were Marxist and other uh, progressives. So I was getting exposure to that in my life and my relationships with people and my work. So I was getting more politically aware of things, of all kinds of injustice and oppression. It's interesting, I think, to highlight the ways in which people become politicised and how it can sometimes be accidental, often through exposure to different people, either in race, sex, class or even perhaps species. Politicisation turned Mason back to animals. But crucially, some of this turn was not through the influence of moral philosophers, but through exposure to women who were victims of domestic violence and the feminist activists who advocated for them. I was still involved with feminist lawyers 
In fact, some of us were trying to raise the issue of battered women in the uh, family law section because I'd been dealing with it for three or four years as a legal service lawyer. And we tried to bring this to the Bar Association. They laughed at us. They said, ah, this isn't happening. They didn't even recognize battered women problems then. Of course, now it's, you know, it's a household word. And then I was working part-time at Friends of, Friends of Animals doing this research. So I was developing relationships with animal-conscious people, and they weren't always the same people. But then, as I went to NOW meetings, I started going to the National Organization of Women meetings there, I did meet a couple of people who seemed to be conscious of both issues. They were animal people who were also feminists, both aware of women's oppression and animal rights. This connection would play a major role in the animal protection movement over the next 50 years, not least because of the work of another feminist animal advocate who worked on the issue of women battering, and someone who published a book every bit as groundbreaking as Silent Spring and Animal Machines. That's Carol Adams, and her book was The Sexual Politics of Meat. We'll come to Adams shortly. Mason and Singer met in 1973. They began to discuss collaborating while Singer was still working on animal liberation. Even so, Mason wasn't a vegan at this point. He wasn't even a vegetarian. His story, though, is resonant of those narratives that vegan advocates hear today. And I wanted to become a vegetarian, but I just didn't have enough conviction yet. Well, I knew that I should, but I just didn't want to take the plunge. I had friends who were vegetarians. I was already going to demonstrations against the... I know that there was a demonstration against a horse meat shop in Connecticut, and I went to the demonstration because I thought it was horrible. And there were vegetarians there, and they were saying, well, you... You're eat, are, you eat, are you still eating meat? And I said, well, yes. And they said, well, shouldn't do that. And I said, well, that's different. You know. So what did he think of vegetarians? And in the end, what changed his mind? That they were extreme, that this was going too far, that there was no need to give up meat because, as I remember arguing with Peter Singer when I finally met him, I still wasn't a vegetarian yet. Well, uh, domestic animals, that's what they're for. I mean, they were created to be meat. And I remember making this argument at the time. And Peter just shook his head. I remember it you know, didn't take him too many more sentences to convince me that this was a totally irrational thought, you know, that I shouldn't even use this anymore. Reasoned argument can be quite useful then. But emotion wasn't to be left out. It was touring factory farms together that cemented Mason's personal change. So we prowled around New York State and, and Connecticut and, and went to the factory farms where he took the pictures that went into animal liberation, pictures of the veal calves and, and some of the uh, pictures, that I guess would have been the first pictures taken of the insides of factory farms for animal liberation. And he, but that was, you can imagine, you know, that association. I'd already studied factory farming. I got another dose of it with Peter. For the first time in my life, I actually went into factory farms. I remember the very first one that we went into was a was a battery egg, uh, egg layer system in New York State, and I was, we were both just blown away. I mean, you talk about emotional shock. When we walked in that place, it was just like, you just, nothing can prepare you for a squalid room, and when I say room, I mean something the size of an aircraft hangar or a three high school gymnasiums full of screaming chickens. And the smell and the sound and the flies and just the whole, oh my God, the whole sensory overload of it enough is that if it, even if there weren't animal suffering involved, just the, the sight, smell, sounds, aesthetics of it would, would knock you over. But it was also like the, the biggest block of suffering I'd ever seen in my life. 
What did this suffering feel like? Whatever it was, it wasn't something I could verbalize then or now. It was just total shock. It was just like, like, you know, being exposed to battle or something. It's just something you can't put into words. It just, it's an emotional upheaval. It's an emotional revolution of something. With, it's, a, it's a great change within you. I'm going to return to emotional revolution in the final episode when we look at the work of the SAVE movement, founded by Canadian woman Anita Krantz. So, Mason and Singer then wrote their book together, Animal Factories, published in 1980. By then, Mason was editing the Animal's Agenda magazine, and initial responses to the book were positive. He was interviewed on the Today programme in the United States, taking the conditions in factory farms to the wider American public. To Mason's chagrin, interest waned, and the movements inspired by Rachel Carson and Ruth Harrison failed to grasp the moment. In spite of Carson and Harrison's connecting the dots between factory farming and environmental and animal welfare horrors, environmentalists and old-style animal activists remained grounded in wilderness, anti-hunting and pro-whale campaigns, the things that had sustained them through the century. Could Mason blame them, though? How much did it take for him to think of farmed animals as worthy of his attention? In the same year that Animal Factories was published, Ingrid Newkirk and Alex Pacheco founded People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, or PETA. PETA would become the world's foremost, or at least the most notorious, animal rights organisation, famous for its provocative campaigns and approach to the media. PETA, the first major organisation committed explicitly to animal rights, began the 40-year move to make animal advocacy organisations both more confrontational and more professional, even corporatised. PETA... Mercy for Animals, Compassion Over Killing, Viva, Animal Equality, and perhaps the original, Compassion in World Farming, would all come in the next four decades to dominate the animal advocacy space, with at least some vegan and rights ethics in their constitutions. Instead of the traditional anti-vivisection, anti-hunting and single-issue organisations that had marked the 19th and early 20th centuries as the spaces where people spoke out for animals, these new organisations refocused activism on farmed animals who constitute more than 90% of all land and air creatures exploited for their flesh. I know there are lots of important figures here we haven't heard from, such as Henry Spearer, Ingrid Newkirk herself, and many others. Yet as partial as a 40-minute episode was always going to be to cover more than half a century, there's one person it would be inadmissible not to include here. Carol Adams. Adams's work has been central to connecting the ways society controls, commodifies, sexualizes and violates the bodies of women and animals. Like the other philosophers discussed in this episode, Adams's ideas formed in the early 1970s, emerging initially in an essay in 1975, the same year Singer published Animal Liberation. Adams first connected feminism and vegetarianism in the classroom of radical theologian Mary Daly and in texts of feminist ethics such as Marge Piercy's Small Changes. It was in Piercy's book, where the protagonist, trapped by a controlling husband seeking to force her to be pregnant, is confronted with a dead animal, which causes her to abstain from eating warm-blooded animals. Adams then started thinking of vegetarianism within a feminist context, especially perhaps Elizabeth Gould Davis's claim that a vegetarian matriarchy was overthrown by an animal-eating patriarchy. You can hear in this echoes of Mary and Percy Shelley's ideas of meat-eating as the root of all evils, discussed in the last episode. Adams encountered other books, such as the manuscripts of Agnes Ryan, an early 20th century feminist vegetarian. Adams then interviewed over 40 feminists in the Boston-Cambridge community who were vegetarian, 
Her paper appeared in the 1975 anthology, The Lesbian Reader. A small press offered to publish a book, but Adams felt her ideas weren't yet fully formed, so she stopped and took another 15 years to get it right. Finally, in 1989, she published The Sexual Politics of Meat. For nearly half a century, Adams has expanded and refined her ideas into an extensive critique of a Western culture founded on discrimination, objectification and violence towards others. So, for example... One of the things that I've tried to talk about in the past 25 years is that Western culture is highly committed to creating subjects by having other beings as objects. In other words, my experience of subjectification in a Western culture is supposed to occur through having other objects, other subjects who have become objects. And by no means is this limited to just the sexism and speciesism, but also racism. So... You know, classically, subjectification in um, pre-Civil War United States of whites included knowing that African-Americans were slaves. And Toni Morrison talks about that, that that whites knew what freedom was because not just in the positive, but in the negative, because they were looking at African-Americans as slaves. So our subjectification to begin with is fragile because it requires others to be objects. And if those others say, I don't want to be an object, I don't want to be your absent referent, then you provoke or evoke this white fragility. But it isn't only theory at the heart of Adams's work. She practices what she calls engaged theory, not just critiquing, but providing solutions. Something that Josephine Donovan and I talk about in the feminist care tradition and animal ethics, that in response to a, a culture that doesn't just objectify or, or create objectification so that others get subjectified, but creates an equivalency that women are seen as being like animals. How do we respond to that? What's the political or theoretical response? There are at least three. Well, the first response is to say there is no connection. How dare you say women are like animals? Our whole purpose is to say women are not like animals. Women are like men and they should be seen as human. And the second thing is to simply use it as a metaphor and just say women were treated like animals and we're moving beyond that. And the third is to say there is a reason, there is a connection, and let's look at it. So you're taking that human, less than human, subhuman, other than human hierarchy and you're not trying to situate someone in there, but explode it to show how it worked. This is also how Adams approaches animal advocacy, exposing the ways in which sexism, racism, prejudice, discrimination and abuse have worked, not only in society at large, but also inside the movement. She argues that, all too often, the now professional animal organisations don't challenge but repeat the sexual hierarchy and patriarchy found in wider society including valorising men who exploit the labour of and even abuse women in the movement. Her work, and that of other feminist ethicists, such as Josephine Donovan and Laurie Gruen, argues for a reintegration of an affective, contextual and relational form of thinking about ethics in contrast to the utilitarian and rights-based theories of male philosophers such as Peter Singer and Tom Reagan. It's salutary to ask ourselves... When we think of the 21 white men who gathered to found the SPCA in 1824, how much has changed? We live in a culture in which men are still validated and valorized more than women and non-gender binary people. 
our culture also valorizes whiteness over people of color. And what has that led to? The winners in this are the white men in the animal rights movement around the world. One of the results of that is, uh, I mean, just of misogyny in general and this valorization of white men in our culture is that rather than the animal rights movement becoming oppositional to the way the dominant culture works, it's mimicking and imitating it. And one reason I think it does that is because often the media responds more, especially to charismatic white men, because those are the ones who've often been seen as having power. It's self-fulfilling too, helped, of course, by men benefiting from the structure. The second thing that happens is that we begin to believe in their valorization. We begin to believe that they possess something none of us possesses and they help reinforce that, that we, we, we end up with an entitled group. And part of entitlement is sexual entitlement. Part of power is sexual power. Thus, the animal movement reinforces its own status quo within and disempowers itself from bringing about meaningful change, which is, to quote Tom Reagan, not bigger cages, but empty cages. So, what as engaged practitioners do we do? As men, as white men especially, we can interrogate our powers and we can centre and promote the voices of those who are as shocked and horrified by the injustices done to animals, but who are marginalised and silenced by the same structures of oppression that harm animals. We can challenge structures that benefit us more in this objectification of others. In the midst of this world-breaking biodiversity collapse, we need every human possible to enable every non-human animal to secure a place to live in peace. Much more could be said about the 20th and 21st centuries, but that will have to wait for another time. In the final episode of the documentary, I'll reflect on the journey from Martin's Act in 1822 through to today. What have we learned? What have we missed? What gaps remain in our legislation and advocacy? And where might the future be leading us? There are a lot of people to thank for this episode. Mia MacDonald, Ben Hunt, Denise Stephens and Caroline Mitchell. Thanks to Siobhan O'Sullivan and Josh Milburn of the Knowing Animals podcast for allowing me to reuse quotes from Kim Storwood about Bridget Brophy. And Carolyn Bailey of AR Zone for permissions to reuse parts of her interviews with Carol Adams. And to Martin Rowe and Charles Hardy III and their interviews with Jim Mason and Peter Singer, which were part of the Recording Animal Advocacy Oral History Project conducted between 1999 and 2004 and available to listen to free of charge through the Columbia University Oral History Archives. Thank you for listening and I hope you'll join me for the final episode. Martin's Act at 200 is a project of the Culture and Animals Foundation. Culture and Animals Foundation. Think. Create. Explore. Celebrate.